You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nedelitsky, and today I'm excited that Dr. Marnie Shea is joining me to share her insights. Marnie is a Senior Research Fellow in the School of Education and an Affiliate Senior Research Fellow in the Centre for Policy Futures at the University of Queensland. Her work spans the fields of Indigenous education and policy, flexible schooling and youth studies. She's published in a wide range of journals, books and scholarly media outlets and is co-editor of an award-winning book in the field of Indigenous education called Indigenous Education in Australia, Learning and Teaching for Deadly Futures. Marnie's work has an ongoing and strong impact on policy and practice. She serves on numerous government and school boards and committees, including the Queensland Department of Education Ministerial Advisory Committee for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Education. She's received awards at national and state level from the Australian Council for Educational Leaders. And unfortunately, she's not on Twitter or Instagram. But welcome, Marnie. Thanks very much, Deb. Pleasure to be here. So let's start the conversation, and I'm actually going to start with a question borrowed from your own Indigenous Education in Australia podcast which is, can you please introduce yourself to the audience, who you are, who's your mob, where you're from, and maybe also if I add in why that's an important question and how that influences your work in education. Yes, thank you for that question, Um, and I'm really glad that you asked it because when I sent the bio through, I realised I didn't even talk about who I am. I just went on this rant about what I do. Um, So, yeah, my mob's from uh, the Daly River region, um, so Wagaman country. I'm Aboriginal on mum's side. And our cultural connections have been passed down maternally, but we do actually have cultural connections to the Baralula area as well. My great-grandfather was from there. So really strong territory connections on mum's side. And dad's side, I'm still learning about, but I believe we have pretty strong Scottish ancestry and a little bit of English ancestry there as well. So I was raised by my mum and hence... Uh, you know, my strong connections to my community and also wanting to work in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education and make a difference for our mob. So that's who I am. I live west of Brisbane, um, so I'm on the lands of the Yurupal people today and I'd like to pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And as you said, I work at the University of Queensland and I Uh, I'm doing a number of projects at the moment, um, which I hope I get to share a bit about today. And so your sort of identity as a proud Australian Aboriginal woman impacts the work that you do and obviously the areas of education that you've gotten yourself um, immersed in, in your work? Oh, of course. Uh, In all of the work that I've done, whether it's, you know, I've worked at, you know, at at that practitioner level in schools, in flexi schools as, you know, youth worker, teacher, a qualified teacher. I've worked on youth programs in my earlier days, but all of it's been shaped by who I am and and what what I wanted to do when I first went to university. I was so lucky to have studied uh, a whole bachelor degree of Indigenous studies and it was the very first time where I had an, an indi- mostly Indigenous lecturers. Uh, it was a really great time in the late 90s, early 2000s, where there was, you know, this emergence of in- Indigenous studies programs at um, some universities. So I went to, my family picked this university for me because they wanted me to study in that strong cultural environment. And uh 
yeah, it was just wonderful um, at Southern Cross University. And I uh, got to learn in a formal environment about, you know, some of the things that I had learnt growing up about Australian history, about things that had happened in our family in a more formal way and, and understanding how the external forces at play um, and how they shaped and influenced our family story and, and our um, experiences, especially, um, you know, with mum and her experiences of being an Aboriginal woman growing up in the 60s and 70s. It's as you're talking about that experience of your sort of family and personal experiences of being an Aboriginal person and then the formal education side of that being taught by Aboriginal lecturers. Mm. I'm just thinking about some of what I've heard Melita Hogarth talk about with her work about mm. that when you enter academia, you are there's this disconnect. She, I think she's talked about where you're taking on the those formalities and the language of the coloniser, but in order to disrupt the status quo. Do you feel that that interesting kind of disconnect in your own identity when you are, you know, taking on academic language and academic journals and and mm. ex- that sort of language, but then you're advocating for Aboriginal education? Yeah, I, I can really connect with, with what Melita was saying. And hi, Melita, if you're listening. Yeah, I think that it does require... <laughs> It does require us to, to navigate um, conversations in a way that is, is using language that we wouldn't ordinarily use. But I think that's the power of having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scholars in the academy because we bring the dual knowledge systems and, and bring a perspective that just hasn't been present within the academy. Um, and no one person brings the same perspective because we all have different histories, different cultures, different stories. And I think that's why we do need to uh, work on increasing the Indigenous research and academic workforce. We just don't have enough diversity in in the scholar in the scholarly areas that we work in. But yeah, I just try and stay strong and not compromise as much as I can. And I, I do that by working really closely with my community. I'm very grounded in, in my community. A lot of my projects are community and school-based. That's how I kind of navigate that. Mm, so grounding yourself in not that you're in the academy thinking beyond the community, but actually you're grounding your work in working with that the community. Absolutely. And I don't have people in my family that are in academia and they keep, they keep things pretty real for me, especially mum. She's a great person for me to to talk to yeah and you mentioned before that a lot of your your youth work and your teaching experience before the academy was in what are called flexi schools so Mm. schools that support young people who've been generally excluded from mainstream education and I'm wondering how that experience has shaped your work and your research since then it's probably had the most profound impact and it's sort of how I ended up going down the path of research uh, because I actually started my master's doing um, some coursework on I can't remember the name of it. It was a program, Youth Development or Psychology of Youth or something. I was a little bit bored, to be honest, so I won't rat out the university. But I I had to move back up to the Sunshine Coast for family reasons. I I have family that live there. And I had to move jobs and I started working back at the University of the Sunshine Coast in the Barunga Centre. And I said to my supervisor at the time, you know, I'm doing this study. I'm not really loving it. Would you support me to to look around um, this university and pick a new course and you know do some more further study she said yes yes of course and um 
anyway, I got talking to an associate professor in the School of Education who had a little bit of experience researching in flexi schools. And she was just a, a wonderful support in, you know, because I didn't really know what research was. I had, I had no idea really. Um, and they had a scaffolder program where you did some coursework around research design, writing literature reviews, all of those really foundational skills that you need as a, as a researcher. And then you did your thesis. So it was an excellent program, actually. And yeah, so I enrolled in that and, um, and realized there's just there's no research at all on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education and engagement with flexi schools. And that really concerned me because there are so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in the alternative schooling sector. And then I started to question why. So I was thinking about accountability. I was thinking about a whole range of things. And it was really difficult, as you can imagine. Do I did two theses in the end. I did my master's and my PhD on that topic, more specifically on Indigenous staff with my PhD. But it was challenging because there wasn't really anything out there in the literature. So I had to make those connections um, as I developed my own work. But yeah, I'm constantly in flexi schools. I'm in a flexi school next week. I'm going to a, a national symposium on the evaluation of one of the largest flexi school providers, Edmund Rice Education Australia. They're doing um, an internal evaluation of their flexi schools. So I'm going to that next week. So yeah, I'm constantly still connected to the flexi schools. I get to interact with young people who attend them because I'm there doing different research projects. So yes. It's interesting to hear. So you went from something where you were doing a master's where you were almost boring yourself with the project that you'd chosen because it wasn't really something that fired you up. And mm. then you found something that did fire you up and that you were really passionate about. And I'm mm. thinking about that a lot of the time in research, we're looking for that teeny tiny gap or that teeny tiny contribution amongst all of the things that are out there. So if I think about educational leadership as a field, there's yes. so much that you're mm. actually looking for. What could my contribution to this possibly be that adds anything? But what you're saying is you found a field where there was so little, there wasn't a body of knowledge for you to even build on almost. Were there other fields that you found you borrowed from in order to look at the literature that might be relevant to flexi-schooling? Uh, yes, th there was, you know, a reasonable amount, of, I guess a solid base on flexi-schooling more broadly. And there was certainly recognition of the high Indigenous engagement. Um, and that's I first became connected with uh, Professor Martin Mills. We sat on an advisory together there and Martin was certainly very aware that Indigenous engagement was high and so he, he was very supportive of me in my earlier stages and I used to use a lot of his work and um, Professor Kitty Tarilla who writes a lot around flexi school so I, I had to draw from that that wider base but also then make those connections um, with what was happening more broadly in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education so yeah it was sort of bringing those two fields together and then um, making some connections for people I guess, you know, the biggest one is, you know, we know very clearly from the data that, you know, mainstream schooling isn't engaging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in ways that it should be. Um, and so therefore, it's not really that surprising that Indigenous young people are finding other, other ways of remaining engaged in education. So that's not really that much of a surprise, but that connection hadn't been talked about in the literature when I first got started. And some of your work is concerned with Indigenous identity and well-being, and particularly the deficit ideas around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and how they, that shapes their experience of education. So things like the mm. assumptions of 
implicit in the school system or from teachers, a deficit assumption, I suppose, about how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students might engage in education and even the things that are embedded in education policy. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the concerns that you've got about the ways in which Indigenous students experience education in Australia Mm. and what are those things that are getting in the way of them being able to experience success in the system that we have at the moment? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, I mean, I've known for some time, both through my family, my own experiences, and then, you know, more broadly uh, through community stories that that that's been the case. But there's been increasing recognition in in the literature and perhaps in policy as well that that this is the case. And and you look at someone like, um, you know, Professor Chris Sara and his work on um, high expectations and um, and really getting educators to think in in strengths uh, with through a strengths lens in terms of their practice around Indigenous education. So I think that conversation's been happening over uh, you know maybe the past decade, maybe more. But it is a profound problem, and I think it is connected to the high numbers of Indigenous young people in flexi schools. And when we did our project. Uh, on identity, well-being, and schooling that was funded by the Lawichi Institute. Uh, we got to hear from Indigenous young people across diverse school settings. So there was young people in mainstream settings, in flexi schools, uh, and the idea around that project was to really listen to young people and provide spaces for them to explore ideas around identity, to express themselves in different ways. So not just interview them and trying to extract their answers it was really a very creative and cultural process where we engaged local Indigenous people so we employed local Indigenous researchers and we did everything from a a grounded perspective where we grounded what we were talking about on country and you know through local knowledges and then we worked from from that base to allow young people to tell us what their experiences are and I have to say whilst the majority of the data from that project tells us that Indigenous young people aren't conceiving their identities in a deficit way. They're having to navigate that all the time in their everyday. So it's not just in school settings, although it was very clear from our data that schools are still problematic for lots of Indigenous young people, but it was in community spaces. The issue of Um, You know, security guards following Indigenous young people around came up quite a lot across our data, especially in regional and remote areas. Uh, And also police, so being, you know, followed by police, harassed by police. We heard some pretty concerning stories, actually, across the board about Indigenous young people trying to navigate their everyday and having a whole heap of assumptions made about their bodies, where they were and what they were doing um, based on their appearance. So... Yeah, I think it's still really interesting. We haven't finished publishing from that project. We are taking our time with it because we've got to find the balance of highlighting the strengths and the the strength in the way Indigenous young people talked about their identity, but also that those systemic issues are very profound. They're still there and we have to find a way of addressing them. Because policy reform has been really strong, I think, even in education. But why aren't we seeing any changes, any any significant changes? We have to stop and ask ourselves that question. We have to reinvest funding into ways that have been um, Indigenous-informed and, um, and are evidence-based. I still see 
policy decisions made in Indigenous education that are whims or their assumptions that in all Indigenous young people love sport, for example, and having a sporting role model might just get them to school. I mean, they're all assumptions. There's no data. There's not a significant, robust data set that would support that. Mm. Oh, so many things I'm thinking about. I don't know which way, which way to go next. Um, one of the chapters that I obviously had the privilege to edit and include in the book that I edited, Future Alternatives for Educational Leadership, you co-wrote with Soraya Hamid and Jodie Miller. And that's linked, I think, in some ways to this conversation about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander identities and then what we might do to support Indigenous Australians in their education. And it was called, the chapter was called Deadly Leadership in the Pursuit of Indigenous Educational Excellence. Mm. And in that chapter, you argue for a strengths-based approach to Indigenous education and critique the use of non-Indigenous metrics to assess Indigenous educational success. And I think that was really... I don't know, I keep coming back to that chapter actually to think about, well, the metrics for success that we have in Australian schools aren't appropriate and I think that challenge that you pose in that chapter about a positive strengths-based approach, can you talk a little bit more about that? Mm, I can because it it informs my everyday thinking. Uh, I always go back to this strengths approach and um, can I tell you that it's a very short story about how I even came across it. I was yes, um, very, very young. I was a youth worker. I, I just finished my first undergraduate degree and I was doing this uh, role called a youth support coordinator. So uh, these were um, community-based appointments where you'd work across a number of schools and you'd be case managing young people who were at risk of disengaging and, you know, doing um, community development work around supporting better engagement uh, and it wasn't just with Indigenous young people, although, although there were, you know, obviously high numbers of Indigenous young people I, I would work with. And I just got this um, message through. I think, I think it might have even been a flyer on my desk or something. And it said this St Luke's Strengths Approaches. And I thought, what on earth is this? And it, I read it. It was quite basic, the um, overview of it. But I thought, oh, this, this sounds really interesting because... What I was struggling with at the time was um, that although the young people I was working with had all these multiple things they were dealing with, they, they were fantastic young people. They had so much resilience, humour, um, and they, it's not that they didn't want to go to school. It's just that they had all of these things happening that were outside of their control. And I really struggled to have the, the language and the framework to let them know, uh, you know, how, how, how great they are in so many ways, like what, what strengths they have. And that's not to ignore all the problems, but I, it, just, it just really spoke to me. So I went to this session. It was only one day and it's, it's just stuck with me through all of my career. It doesn't matter what I've been doing. Um, so I, you know, was a teacher for some time. I taught at TAFE. Just, just those ideas just sat with me and I brought them through to my thinking with, my research work and I would say that pretty much every bit of research I've been involved in I've brought those principles and that lens and that thinking to my research which in a problem-based industry is actually pretty difficult believe it or not and so I've invested in my thinking around it I've engaged with a lot of theories like um, funds of knowledge funds of identity salutogenic theory they just don't quite capture its significance for Indigenous education. And so I've actually, I'm writing a, a book proposal at the moment around, um, you know, what does theorising a strengths approach 
for Indigenous research, but I would say in an applied setting, it would have a lot of relevance as well, uh, look like. So, yeah, I'm, it's something I invest a lot of thinking in, yeah, and it is very significant. And it's quite si- it's simple in some ways, but it's complex in others. It's around acknowledging the strengths and um, capacities and knowledges of people that exist, and it's about acknowledging when problems are problems. It's the problem, it's not the person. It's a very effective way of walking people through really complex topics, I think. It sounds like another gap that you're looking to fill that you're seeing. Yeah. Are are there other examples that you can think of about work that you've seen that has good outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students? There are a lot of schools that are doing some really excellent work in and around Indigenous education. And we've known for some time what what types of approaches are effective. And we know that, uh, you know, working collaboratively and and in partnership with Indigenous people and community is an effective way of of making change in a school setting. So, you know, in Queensland, for example, the Department of Education has been trialling a co-design approach uh, in, in local communities. And I've heard from communities that I've been working with that, uh, it's been received really well from those communi- by those communities because um, it, it's not radical stuff. It's just about, you know, decision makers making decisions with Indigenous people and actually listening and taking the advice and knowledge and then doing something with it in an applied way. So, uh, yeah, there's certainly um, some shifts happening that, that I'm seeing uh, and I'm sure there's many more examples as well. So that idea of partnership and communication and collaboration and co-design is really key to what schools or education organisations should be doing in this space. Well, co-design, it's a complex term and we've we've just been uh, awarded some funding from the ARC to explore that. So it's a very popular term at the moment and I think when it gets used by different people, it has different meaning. So if you're looking at a, a setting like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education, we really need some data to inform shared meanings and so shared conceptualizations and shared ideas about what um, really excellent practice and enactment looks like in policy settings. So, yeah, that's that's a, a bit of work that we're just getting started on at the moment. So what's your hunch then about what are the ingredients of, co- like if someone says, oh, we're co-designing with our local Indigenous community, something to do with, you know, what we're putting together in our educational organisation, what would be the important ingredients of that process, do you think? Look, something that's really striking for me, and I've seen it in different settings that I've been a part of, is government or an institution or a school or something, principal, they'll say, you know, I'm, co- I'm co-designing whatever it is because I've got, this, I've got X, Y or Z, I've got this problem, this is what I want to do and then I'm going to co-design it with the community. Now, to me, that's not co-design. <laughs> because you've already decided what the problem is and you've already decided how to address it and then you're going to Indigenous people. To me, that's more consulting and it's probably not really great consultation actually when I think about it. But I think it needs to be applied from the very outset of the relationship. So it's not something where, you know, you can kind of come up with a list of problems that you need to solve in your job and then, and then go out to community and say, you know, these, these are the problems, you know, let's co-design them, co-design some programs or solutions to it. 
I don't think that will be very effective. And from what I'm reading so far, it has mixed results. I also know that from the literature that there's not a lot of, you know, really strong evidence-based examples of, you know, from the start of the process to the end, what, you know, what the ingredients are. And I suspect that they're going to look differently as well. So that's the complexity of Indigenous education actually outside of this co-design conversation is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are incredibly diverse. And so one policy approach or one approach isn't going to work for everybody. But I'm sure there are some good practice and and good principles that can be implemented in the pursuit of co-design, good co-design. So foundational principles like an actual partnership that is actually mutually beneficial and probably equitable Mm in its power structure as much as anything else. But I'm also thinking about how schools work and how policy rooms work and and that the challenge is that it it can't be simplistic, it can't be a recipe, it can't be a one-size-fits-all and it can't be something that's tokenistic where, you know, because we've got a reconciliation action plan or something similar, we just, here's our, you know, three dot points that we're checking off that we're doing something in this space. It's it's Mm. more meaningful and complex and embedded in community and communication and partnerships than that. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, actually, you know, one of the critical aspects of our culture is that relationality. And to me, that would be one of the key ingredients. It's that foundation of a trusting, respectful relationship between whoever's, you know, working together. So Indigenous people and let's just say, for example, a principal of a school. Um, I don't think any co-design project would be effective if that relationship isn't strong. Mm. And that takes time as well. And so it's actually building relationships Mm. with community over time as well, not just um, something that might be done quickly or one-off. Yes, yes. And that's been talked about in this field, in Indigenous education, for a long time now. Um, And I think there are some excellent examples of where school leaders have taken that forward really well. But we also know, you know there's a increasing demands and pressures on principals and, and when they have to prioritise what they can get done in one day, that doesn't get to the top of the list for some people. Um, mm-hmm. It continues to have an impact on Indigenous education. One of the things in my role is around staff development and teacher goal setting and um, how they might develop themselves. And when the teachers that I see reflect against the Australian professional standards for teachers, the ones in which they often feel the most deficient, non-Indigenous teachers anyway, are the ones that are about understanding and respecting Australian histories and being capable of delivering education to Indigenous students and understanding Indigenous knowledges and perspectives, which is a cross-curricular priority. Um, What might be your advice to teachers or schools or the system in terms of how we support teachers to be more confident, more sensitive, more capable in that space? Uh, Again, another big question. (laughs) Just solve all of the problems here (laughs) for me, Marnie, in one podcast. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I mean, the thing is, though, Deb, is that there have been compulsory courses around Indigenous education in some institutions for over a decade now. And it's like any area of, of teacher practice, you have to invest, you have to invest time in it. Um, you have to prioritise it. We are so fortunate now to be in a time where, you know, Indigenous voices, books, literature, it's growing in a really, really rapid way, which is a wonderful thing. And Aboriginal communities, Torres Strait Islander communities have always been there. We haven't gone anywhere. 
Um, so wherever you are, there are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around and there's events happening and all sorts of things happening. I just think that if, if, if you're really serious about it, you'll do something about it. Um, no one can do it for you. Um, I rewrote the course when I started at UQ, the master's um, course, because I wanted to include in the assessment a future professional development plan because, you know, I used to say to the cohort straight up, you're not going to get everything you need from this course. This is ongoing learning. I'm Aboriginal. I've grown up with an Aboriginal parent. I don't feel comfortable getting up and being the, the knower of all things Indigenous. It's You're forever learning, but you have to actually engage with it if you're going to keep learning. You can't sort of sit back and say, well, well, I don't feel confident. Well, you're not going to feel confident unless you go and do that learning for yourself. And so what I say to them is that, you know, you're all very capable people. You're doing a master's program. You tell me what you're deficient in and where your gaps are, and then you go and find some resources and write it into your plan and tell me, you know, how that's going to help you develop over time. So that would be one thing I would say to teachers. So prioritisation, make it important and do something about it. Yeah. And and really there are some, there's just excellent resources out there now. There's um, new research happening. Um, you've got, you know, Dr. Kevin Lowe's doing some amazing work around culturally nourishing schooling. You've got Professor Irabina Rigney doing the culturally responsive pedagogies. There's great research happening everywhere. We just need to look for it, engage with it. It's there. Absolutely doable. Just needs to it be done doable. and engaged yeah. with. One of the things that in my own research and writing that I've really loved with your work is that you've developed this research methodology called collaborative yarning methodology grounded in Indigenous research theory. And I'd love for you to talk about the importance of yarning and about this methodology and what it offers researchers. You know, I started at a time where, you know, we had Professor Dawn Besserab, they'd been, um, you know, Professor Bronwyn Fredericks had all, you know, developed this scholarship of, of yarning in their research. So, I was so fortunate as an Aboriginal person coming through that that scholarship existed because I inherently knew how to work with my mob. I, I knew that yarning would, would very much form a part of how I was going to do the research on my PhD, uh, which the topic was the stories and experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educators working in flexi-school settings. And so when I was reading that literature, one thing I I felt was a little bit missing was a conversation about how the data was collected and and how you worked like and because I'm quite I'm quite practical so I was, you know when I'm reading this great literature I'm thinking okay well I'm in the room I'm yarning with people how am I collecting the data I was thinking ahead of time and uh, I felt like audio recording was not the way to go that was just my hunch having worked in flexi schools and also you know been around indigenous people my whole life I know you know, if you're yarning with someone and you put a tape, an audio recorder in the middle of the room, it's going to change the dynamic and it's going to change how people feel and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I also wanted a way to incorporate that knowledge in the room. So a, a way that would enable um, some sort of analysis, co-analysis at, at, the, at the time of collecting the data. Um, so I looked to, you know, outside of the Yarning Scholarship and I came across um, a scholar called Professor Kaz Stewart, who I, I actually worked with later on. But Kaz had done a lot of quite 
applied research with practitioners and she'd use this kind of method around storyboarding. And what that looked like was uh, a fairly formal textual analysis of or and record of what you know what was happening in the room so it was a little bit different to my setting culturally and otherwise but I thought okay I like that idea so the the basis of that collaborative yarning methodology is very much about getting people to be more thoughtful and considered in how your how yarning is used in a research setting because I think sometimes because I review you know ARCs and papers and things now and I, I often get people who think they're being really culturally appropriate because they're yarning, but it's not just about yarning. It's, there's a whole range of things and they're ethical principles that have been, you know, talked about quite broadly in, you know, the AATSIS uh, guidelines, for example, for in Indigenous research and HMRC guidelines. Um, it's thinking about a whole range of things, not just the act of yarning. If we go back a step for our listeners, how would you define yarning itself? Yeah, so yarning is, it's a way of sharing knowledge. It's a way of connecting. It's a way of listening and it's a way of being. And so yarning for, I had to, before I wrote that paper, I, I talked a lot with yeah different people in my family asking elders and in my family about, you know, when did you start hearing the term yarning? Where did this come from in our culture? Because it's obviously an English word, right? Mm. But, yeah, I couldn't quite get to the bottom of it. But I know in, you know, my my family who are living that it was quite common to have a yarn. Um, and I don't know how, yeah, it kind of emerged into being acknowledged as a really significant way of communicating. I couldn't quite find those I could kind of just through yarning, talking to people, but not so much in, in the literature. So, yeah, I had to be quite cautious about, you know, how I could talk about that because I couldn't say definitively how how that worked. But, yeah, I just know that, you know, I've grown up, you know, just it's just that being and not having uh, parameters around what you're yarning about. It's just letting people express themselves and, Professor Dawn Besserab talks about that meandering that happens with, with yarning. That's the lovely thing about yarning is you get to find out different things and about different people because you're not, you know, sitting there in this structured way of, of interacting. It's, yeah, it's a really powerful thing, I think. It's more than a structured conversation. It's, I love that you called it a way of being and that in your work in the collaborative yarning methodology, it was about, well, how do I bring that trust and relationality and meandering unstructuredness to something that is in research, a structured and then articulated method? Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Yes. And I wanted to allow that to happen, but then I was thinking about the implications for it, the fact that we are in a research setting because you don't want people to forget that they're, what they're doing either. You don't want them to feel too comfortable and, you know, overshare or, or to say something that they don't actually want collected as research data. And the way that I ended up collecting the data allowed people to have that authority over what was collected and what, or what was recorded and what wasn't. Mm, as part of so, that co-analysis. Yes, it's extremely exhausting as the researcher. I, that's something I did not really anticipate. And you have to be so focused um, and it's very helpful. So now that I've got grants and things, I actually have people to help me with it now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I was doing everything 
on my own and it was very intensive but it was it was well worth it yeah and I I know that that paper's taken off it's um I get a lot of interest in it a lot of people asking about it I know that in the evaluation that's happening with the flexi schools they've used it as as the methodology for um yeah understanding staff experiences so yeah it's it's something I'm I'm quite proud of that paper excellent this year, the National Reconciliation Week theme is Be Brave, Make Change. Mm. And if you were going to wave a magic wand or maybe just make something really good happen for Indigenous education in Australia, what do you think is a change that we could be making or we should be making or how might we be brave in this space? Yeah. I don't know how I feel about the, the term brave, to be honest. I think be ethical and do your job. To be honest, if I'm if I'm really you are very pragmatic. I am very pragmatic, and I understand I understand the thinking behind it, and I know that in leadership, uh, Brene Brown and others, that that notion of being brave is really important. But also, you know, for our people, we can't continue to wait for people to be brave. We just need people to to act on things that we've known for a long, long time. You know, I, I sit with some of um, my elders and we're having the same conversations. We can't go through another generation of having the same conversations. So our people haven't had the luxury of being brave. Our people have been surviving mm. and navigating a whole range of things that are just unfair. They're unjust, they're unfair, and they're through no fault of our own. Like some of the barriers and things that you have to come up against and then you've got, you know, this idea of, well, let's be brave. And, yeah, I just I struggle with it. I really do. Maybe it's more that making the change. I'm thinking about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was, mm. um, you know, 2017, we're still talking about it in 2022. Yeah, that's right. I, I think, yeah, not we don't need to be brave anymore. We just need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Take action. <laughs> yeah. Let's get in there. Let's get it done. Excellent. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move us to the final five questions, uh, which I call the quickfire enlightening round. Yeah, right. So (laughs) one thing is, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? I thought maybe I'd share that I love to make furniture and restore furniture. So I do that for my friends and my family. I'm all about recycling because, as you know, we've got a bit of a a crisis with our climate at the moment and um, I'm all about yeah creative ways of of reducing consumption and and buying things so uh, yeah I just started you know taking old furniture that not, there was nothing wrong with it it just maybe wasn't the wrong color uh, right color or whatever it might have had a scratch or something in it and uh, yeah I take a lot of joy in restoring it so that's that a very a, a very fun fact it is a fun fact uh, what about something that's currently on your desk? There's a lot on my desk, Deb. It's probably <laughs> I haven't got one thing. Yeah, I thought I'd just say a lot. A yeah, lot. I've a got lot a is lot on the going desk. on. A lot going on at the moment. Yeah. And your desk reflects that. Fair yeah. enough. Who's someone that inspires you in your work? That was really difficult for me because I have so many people that inspire me. My mum, of course. And Professor Grace Sarah, she's been a wonderful mentor for me. Um, Annie Denise Proud. And then all the awesome, amazing people that I get to work with in schools and communities. So uh, Bernadette Jones, she's um, an amazing 
worker over in uh, Western Australia, actually, and, you know, she got a language program, her own language, running in her school. You got people like um, my good colleague, Fred Cobbo, who, who got a Waka Waka language revitalization program up and running in his school for the very first time ever. Uh, those, those sorts of things really inspire me, yeah. So people who are being ethical, doing the job and making the positive change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It sounds like you've got a lot on your plate and a lot coming up. What's one thing that you've got coming up that you're particularly excited about? At the moment, we are finishing a project that we've been trying to finish for some years now. It was disrupted by COVID, but um, we're doing a, a project across all of the Flexi schools in Queensland where we're developing a professional development video series around ex- what excellence in Indigenous education looks like in Flexi schools. So I'm doing a lot of field work for that, so I'm getting out to, back out to the schools and I'm excited about that. That sounds really exciting. That comes back to that chapter about what does excellence look like for Indigenous students in Australia and Indigenous education. Yes, same project. Same project, more work. Mm. Yeah, Lot, that's Lots right. coming out of that by the sounds. Yep. And if you were to distill your current thinking about education down to its essence, what's one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? Well, I'd stick to the train of thinking around excellence. We need to rethink, all of us as educators, what we're striving for in Indigenous education. I don't think we should be trying to, perhaps there's activities around close the gap that, you know, we might want to continue with, but we have to reshape the language we're using. We have to reshape our thinking. And I believe we need to strive towards a practice of excellence in Indigenous education for the benefit of Indigenous young people, but for all young people that live on this country. And they should as well understand the full histories of this country and and the culture of this country. It's a very rich culture and, and I believe all Australian young people should should have access to that knowledge and understand that. It sounds like so much of your work comes from a deep belief about all the positive and amazing things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, our original First Nations people bring to Australia and and at the same time sort of fighting what, you, you know, those kind of constant inequities, systemic inequities that have existed for so long. And as you say, moving from kind of survival to a really positive, exciting and excellent experience of education. Indeed. And we're only a minority, so we can't do it on our own. We need our allies. We need our colleagues to, yeah, to make the change. We can't do that for this country. It's just not possible. Well, thank you so much, Marnie, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.